and welcome to Bombs Away, a Minnesota Twins podcast. I'm your host, CJ Baumgartner. We're bringing down all that is going on in Twins territory. Big news since we last spoke and over the weekend is that the Minnesota Twins magic number has now gone down to 11. Yeah, that's right. It's the Jason Bartlett number. Now you might say to yourself, hey, CJ, didn't Jason Bartlett wear number 18? And you'd be correct except for his second stint with the Twins in 2014 when he wore number 11. Uh, So if you go to the Bombs Away Twitter page, you'll see that I have a picture uh, of Jason Bartlett in the number 11 uniform. It feels weird, of course, because again, Jason Bartlett wore number 18. But remember there was that stretch where Terry Ryan in 2014 was like, hmm, this team is really bad. How can we get like butts and seats? What's a good way to get people to come watch the twins while also like giving our young prospects some kind of major league caliber. And I'm using that in air quotes uh, talent to like protect those young guys from having to come up too early. I don't know. uh, How about we re-sign Jason Kubel who uh, had to wear number 13 instead of number 16. That was also another interesting wrinkle. And also let's re-sign Jason Bartlett because these are two things that are going to work out, you know, again. And and by the way, there was also rumors that uh, he wanted to go after Johan Santana and sign him to a minor league deal. And also the twins, I believe at the time, and I could be wrong about this, were trying to pursue Kyle Loesch. So like if this were 2006, I mean, that that would look great. Jason Bartlett, Jason Kubel, uh, Johan Santana, Kyle Loesch. In the year of our Lord 2014, that necessarily doesn't look as uh, enticing. And it wasn't because I don't think Jason Bartlett got called up to the big leagues, if at all. Uh, certainly, I don't think Jason Kubel, maybe Kubel. And now I'm going to look this up. But uh, neither of them really did anything of note. So I'm going to look up Jason Bartlett. 2014. And if we look up Jason Bartlett's uh, uh, baseball reference page, uh, he did have three games for the twins in 2014. He had four plate appearances, three at bats. He had no uh, hits. He walked a couple times uh, or hold on. I'm looking at 2012. So he had three at bats. He scored three runs, by the way, had no hits. Uh, He had three strikeouts, and uh, that's that's uh, that's pretty pretty much it. He had no RBIs. He uh, just yeah, not uh, not a good run for Jason Bartlett the second time around. Things did not uh, things didn't end up well for him. Whereas if we look at uh, maybe let's let's go to Jason Kubel. How did he do in his second stint with the Minnesota Twins again, wearing number thirteen this time instead of number sixteen, like he did in his first stint. In Minnesota, if you remember, Jason Kubel had a year in 2012 where he was legitimately really good. He had an 8.33 OPS in the first half of the season. He was a darn near MVP candidate for the Diamondbacks. Things kind of fell apart. He uh, in 2013 he ended up getting traded to Cleveland. Things didn't work out for him very well in Cleveland, and then he went back to the Twins, where his OPS was a uh, let's say down to 6.07. He had an OPS plus of 73. Uh, But at least in 2014, he was able to play in 45 games for the Twins. He did have 35 hits, six doubles, one triple, one home run and 13 RBIs and a stolen base as well. Jason Kubel in 2014 had a stolen base. Things were not going well for the Twins. But if you remember, uh, Kubel had to take number 13 because Josh Willingham was number 16 
at the time. Although in 2014, it would be Josh Willingham's last year in Minnesota because he would have been traded to the Kansas City Royals that year and then retire uh, that following winter. Uh, anyway, uh, that's just a long-winded way of saying, oh my gosh, I want to forget about those 20-teens twins. Like, 2015 is fun. Let's block out 2016 entirely. And then pretty much after that, uh, those lean years in the fall of the era, or uh, excuse me, in the Terry Ryan era, were not great. Again, uh, I know we like to forget about the Terry Ryan era. We like to pretend that everything was the early 2000s twins, and it was Tory Hunter, Joe Maurer, Justin Morneau all coming up, which again, Terry Ryan does deserve credit for and does deserve credit for bringing those guys up in the development. Like there is part of that he does get credit for, uh, but we also do have to acknowledge the those 20 teens twins in that second rebuild, which ultimately did not end up well. I know that there were some players that they still got out of it. You still had Max Kepler, Jorge Polanco, those, those guys were a very long work in progress. You still had those guys, but at the end of the day, you was headlined around Sano and Buxton and Sano's not even in the league anymore. And Byron Buxton as well in the state Byron Buxton is at, which is getting sidelined on his rehab assignment. It's not trying to kick Buxton while he's down. It's just saying that like that core. And again, Jose Barrios was part of that core. And there are a couple other guys never really came to fruition in the way that the twins brass of the end of the Terry Ryan era really wanted. And again, they were far behind in scouting. They were far behind in analytical development. Like they were dead last in all of those. And it's why they had an hundred loss season in 2016. You bring in Derek Falvey, Thad Levine. And now again, I'm not trying to say that they're the saviors of the franchise or anything. What I am trying to say is they did push forward to where we weren't signing Jason Bartlett and Jason Kubel and trying to get a very clearly washed up Johan Santana and get Kyle Loesch back. And like, there's just so many things of like, why? And the point is Falvey and Levine have their qualms. They have their uh, things that you can nitpick them about. And for good reason, by the way, I've criticized this front office on this podcast before. So I'm not trying to get out here and defend the front office and say they can do no wrong. What I am trying to say is there's a lot of revisionist history with a lot of how we view the Terry Ryan era because of the early 2000s twins. And maybe a revisionist history is just looking at the end a little bit with uh, how it, how everything kind of came to a halt. But the fact is that the twins were so bad at utilizing the resources they had and so bad at acquiring talent and so bad at developing, like things just w- did not turn out well. Uh, so that's just kind of your reminder of the, the uh, era. There's a long-winded way of saying the day before, I also used Chris Herman who is number 12 for part of his time in Minnesota. Another uh, another fun guy, a part of those rebuilding twins. Uh, could do it all. Uh, was on some playoff rosters with uh, Oakland and I believe Toronto. Uh, anyway, um, um, uh, I digress. I digress on my point. Twins magic number is down to 11. The Twins were able to win two out of three against New York Mets, but over the last two days, they've gained two ground uh, two games in the magic number counter because the guardians are continuing their mission to just self implode entirely. The Gardos uh, have lost again. They've lost uh, three out of their last four. The twins magic number again, down to 11. They have a seven and a half game lead in the American league central. Uh, and the twins haven't necessarily been playing the greatest team baseball lately, but they've just been hovering enough above or around 500 to be able to basically stave off anything or to 
prevent Cleveland from even getting within sniffing distance and Cleveland themselves, they're not even winning ball games. Like that's the precipice of, Oh, the twins aren't playing that great of baseball right now. And Oh my gosh, the guardians are going to catch up. I remember there was this thing last week when the twins had a seven game lead after the Cleveland series and everybody went, you know, that this time last year, the tigers had a seven game lead on the twins in 2009. And, and you know, we all know that the twins end up tying the division and winning it and whatever. And that's not the same. This Guardians team is bad. They're very bad. It doesn't matter how good the Twins do the rest of the way. The Guardians are not a good baseball team. They're going to be closer to 10 games below 500 than they will be to the 500 mark. So they're not a good baseball team. They're not the team of last year. They got insanely lucky. And the uh, what I believe has been on Twitter is the Fraudians in Cleveland. Uh, so last year was a fluke for them. And maybe the Twins are the fluke this year. I don't know. But look. Cleveland is not good, so there's no need to, to panic over, over that. Um, if you want an updated postseason picture, if the season ended today, the Twins would be, and let me, I'm going to double check this because I believe the Twins play would play the Texas Rangers if the season ended today. It would be a three-game series at Target Field against Texas. So let me put in the MLB playoff bracket here gives you the updated numbers here on the postseason. And what Major League Baseball's own website says is that if the season ended today, the Baltimore Orioles would get the one seed in a first-round bye. The uh, Houston Astros would get the two seed in a first-round bye because remember, last year in the new collective bargaining agreement, the playoffs expanded. There's no more singular wild-card game. It's now a three-game wild-card series. So the wild-card series uh, is between the twins who would be the three seed because they're the division winner. And then the six seed Texas Rangers would be the final wild card spot. And then there's two other wild card teams. The four and five seeds would play each other in a four or five matchup. And the four would be Tampa Bay. So all three games would be at Tampa Bay in a best two out of three. And they would play the Toronto blue Jays. So again, the twins would host all three games against the Rangers best two out of three, and if the Twins won, they would go on to play the Houston Astros, which, yeesh, uh, the Astros just know how to win in the postseason. They're like the New England Patriots of the 2000s. Like, it doesn't matter how good you think they are. It doesn't matter how down uh, they are. It doesn't matter whatever. They just know how to win at this point in the year. So, you know, whatever. The Twins would have to win a playoff series, let alone a playoff game, to even worry about that. But that's where things are standing. Um and uh, obviously the Orioles would have the one seed over on the national league side. The Brewers have a three, six advantage over the diamondbacks five, four or four, five, rather Philadelphia would host the Chicago Cubs and the Braves are the one seed. They've already clinched a playoff berth, which is astounding. And the Los Angeles Dodgers would have the two seed. So that is the playoff picture as things stand today. The American league race is pretty much like uh, Seattle right now is on the outside looking in because they've lost four in a row. Um, Seattle's really the only team that's kind of, uh, trying to break their themselves into the American league postseason race. And the only thing is where do the wildcard teams stack up? It looks like the three division winners are pretty much set. Now things can happen. Tampa Bay and, uh, uh, Seattle and Texas are still trying to get their division leaders. Uh, but Baltimore and the Astros, I think are pretty much, I know they only have like two game leads, but I think they're pretty much set. Um, and the Twins are pretty much set where they're at at the three seed. 
That National League wildcard, by the way, really, really fun because the Reds are still in it. The Giants are still in it. Uh, the Marlins, old friend Luis Rise is still in it. Uh, so there's a lot of fun things. But the Twins took two out of three games from the Mets. You saw some timely hitting by the Twins in the first two games of that series. And then you saw absolutely no hitting in the final game. But first, uh, a couple things I want to notice. One thing out of the game, one of the Mets is there was this uh, thing started on Twitter uh, for all the Twins fans to basically try and do a uh, thing that the Phillies fans did for Trey Turner. So Trey Turner is a shortstop, signed a big contract with the Phillies in the offseason, and he was struggling for most of the year. And there was a point, I think, in late July, early August, where all these fans in Philadelphia, and you know how notorious Philly sports fans are for being just loud and crass and bad, and they did a very nice thing, which is they all stood up and applauded Trey Turner, and they're like, hey, man, you're struggling, but we got you. You know, like, don't worry, we're still supporting you. Go through your struggles. We know you'll come through. And Trey Turner, who again had an OPS comparable to Carlos Correa, who's, as we all know, has been struggling this year for most of the season, uh, has really turned it around. Now he hasn't become like, you know, he hasn't have like an OPS of 1100 or anything, but he's just become more competent. He's gotten his OPS up and, and things have just been turning around for Trey Turner. So a lot of Twins fans online or this one particular, and I don't know the Twitter handle off the top of my head, so I don't want to miscredit you, uh, but good job, man. You started a uh, thing on online and it bled its way through. I know some beat reporters for the Twins helped spread the word of like doing a, like we're all going to show up to this game on the 8th, which was Friday night. And when Carlos Correa is first up, we're all going to stand and give him a standing O and we're going to like show that we are behind you and you're our superstar shortstop and things aren't going your way, but don't be discouraged. Like the fan base is behind you. And it, you know, it had mixed results. The whole stadium wasn't cheering up and standing, but there were certainly pockets. And if you watch the New York Mets broadcast, which there are clips of it on Twitter, uh, you can actually see that the Mets cameras like all focus on a few of these pockets of fans who are doing it. And there's uh, even the uh, crew for, I think it's SNY uh, is like acknowledging a little bit. Uh, do I, do I think that they know hundred percent what's going on? No, but I think they, I think they kind of understand that there's a standing. Oh, I don't maybe think they knew the exact reason, but it was really cool. So congrats to everybody who was there and made that happen. That's really cool. Uh, because I know there's a lot of people and there's a lot of who's like, well, I mean, he's been so, like, he hasn't been playing well. And does he really deserve that? Yeah. May, does he deserve it through his play on the field? No, but ultimately does he deserve the benefit of the doubt? I mean, sure. Like Carlos Correa has gotten booed before. And I know there's some people that don't necessarily like the boos and I understand their thought process and that I'm not going to say that they're wrong. I think if you play bad, you you know you do have the right to get booed. You are getting paid a lot of money. Like on a gut level, I'm not going to like morally grandstand because I feel like I would. And again, some people hold that view differently, and I genuinely believe that they believe that. But I'm not like I feel like if I did it, I'd be grandstanding because I don't necessarily believe that. Like in a gut level, I think it's fine when athletes get booed every once in a while. Then do they need to get booed all the time? And is every boo justified? Absolutely not. Uh, but my whole point is to say Correa does deserve support because yeah, he has struggled, but it's not like he doesn't care. Like there are some twins players who've struggled and it looks like they don't care or they're causing headaches around. And like, even if they don't necessarily deserve to get booed for what they're doing on the field, they certainly deserve to get booed for what they're doing in the clubhouse. Correa is not that he's been everything the twins have wanted him to be except for that on-field production. And that seems like a major cop-out and it probably is, but Correa has been as good as advertised on the field He's been as good as advertised in the clubhouse. 
He's been mentoring those young guys, been helping them out despite his struggles. It could be very easy for Correa to just like shell up and never talk to anybody and never do anything and whatever. But for him to actually come out and still be a part of this team and still be a good team leader, he doesn't have to be. His contract warrants he should be. But as we've learned with a lot of times, I mean, look at Josh Donaldson. He struggled for the Twins at times. I thought he was generally fine as a twin, not great, not horrible. Uh, But he was certainly a guy who didn't jive in that clubhouse. He was a guy who certainly didn't mesh with everybody in the clubhouse and it impacted the rest of the team. And Cray is not that guy. And my point is, is like the guy's a pro he's a world series champion. He deserves a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, uh, which gets me uh, to a point of September Correa, which I'm going to get to in just a second. By the way, Correa, I uh, think, drew a walk in that at-bat, but later in the game, he did hit a home run, So, and it was the hardest hit home run of his career. So, yeah, it didn't, it didn't not work. Did that sit in? Did that stand in? And I'll get to September Correa's numbers in just a second. The Twins uh, were down 2 nothing early on a, Dallas, uh, on a uh, start by, I think, it was, uh, I'm trying to remember. I think Keuchel started Friday night. Uh, and then Kenta pitched on Saturday afternoon. Kenta got down two runs, uh, gave up two runs in the first inning. Twins rallied back, scored a bunch of runs. And Kenta Maeda has definitely been slowing a bit. The Kenta hype train has definitely, uh, you know, maybe stalled a little bit from what it was in like mid-August. But Kenta Maeda still has been a good Twins pitcher this season. Even though he gave up the two runs early, he settled down and still had a nice start through five innings. Um, and put the twins in a position to win the ball game. So even when Kenta's not at his best, he still has been able to help the twins and put them in position to win starts. Kenta Maeda, you know, King Kenta, my king, he's my king. Uh, but you know, whatever. He'll be he's obviously gonna be in the bullpen. He's not gonna come back next year. Like there's just a or at least signs aren't pointing to him coming back next year. Uh, you know, do the twins maybe float him like a one-year deal as like a come back and be our fifth starter? Eh. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I wouldn't necessarily be clamoring for it is maybe the best way to word that. But Kenta Pitchwell, Twins offense came out and hit a bunch of runs. Max Kepler uh, hit a basis clearing triple in the game and really could have been an inside the park home run if he didn't do a little bit of a home run trot. It's not a knock against Kepler. The Twins were already in control in that game. Uh, The other thing was Louis Varland came in to pitch. And the thing with Louis Varland, and again, we talked about on the last episode, how Louis Varland has the potential to be a really, really good, uh, multi-inning reliever. He's got, whether it's long relief, whether it's him coming in the seventh inning in a high leverage situation, whatever Louis Varland as a starter, convert him into a bullpen guy for the rest of the season. And for the playoffs can work. And he's throwing harder. He, I mean, I think he clocked out at 99 miles an hour, which the guy normally throws in the 95, 96 range as a law, as a stretched out, going to pitch for five, six innings, a game starter as a reliever, where you're throwing two to four innings at most, he's throwing 99. So Louis Varland can throw harder. It gives the twins another option. I certainly trust Louis Varland over a Josh Winder, a Cole Sands over, uh, you know, Dylan Floro for sure. Like Brent Hedrick. There's a bunch of guys I would trust him more than, but at the same time, the one thing that really kind of tanked Louis Varland as a starter this season and why he had to go down to St. Paul for a while is the fact that he gave up a lot of home runs and we saw those home runs kind of linger again in that start or in that relief appearance on Saturday. He gave up two home runs 
Uh, and again, there's a couple guys in those Mets lineup who are pretty good sluggers. I think one of those home runs was to P Alonso who hit it an absolute mile, but at the same time, there's a lot of players in the postseason who can hit the ball an absolute mile. And you're going to have to be able to try and pitch around that and not offer up those guys good things to hit. Anecdotally, it feels like the Twins give up a ton of home runs on 0-2 pitches. The Twins last night gave up a three-run bomb against the Tampa Bay Rays uh, in the opening game of that three-game series on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, there was, again, that one of those home runs Varlin gave up was on an 0-2 pitch. There's just certain things where it's like you just got to be a little more disciplined in the pitch selection or I don't know. Uh, I'm speculating there a little bit, but either way, uh, that's where the twins sit. Louis Varland is a, can be a really good reliever, but he hadn't cleaned. He couldn't clean up the home runs as a starter this year. And he hasn't shown really many signs that he's cleaned up the home runs as a reliever yet this year. Now, again, the other, those other three batters, he took care of no business and the twins won the game easily. They had a lot of run support. So it's not the end of the world. And again, why you're putting Louis Varland in these situations now is to prepare him and to get him used to that. And, you know, like the twins are putting him maybe in a couple of those low leverage spots because they want to make sure that they kind of understand where his level is at, where his comfort level is at and how comfortable are the twins putting him in a certain situation. So my point is Louis Varland gives up a lot of home runs. He still can be dominant, but in the postseason, teams hit home runs and teams try to hit home runs. The teams that went, there's a, an article by Tom Verducci back in 2019 for Sports Illustrated, and it still stands true since 2020, 2021, and 2022. Typically, the team that hits the most home runs, or at least is towards the top echelon of teams in the postseason that hit home runs, those teams go on to win the World Series. So it, I know everybody likes to think that in postseason baseball, you got to play small ball and you got to scrape across runs, and you do in a certain sense. I'm not trying to knock that. Games are managed differently in the postseason than they are in the regular season. But at the same time, you're not necessarily going to say, well, are we going to try and slap three singles together and get a run? Or is it easier for everybody to take big swings and hit a ball over the fence? And I get that there's pros and cons to either side of the argument. But right now, if you're looking at the data, it shows that the team that hits the most home runs wins in the postseason because if you hit, a, it takes one swing for a home run and you score a run. Versus and the pitching's better, way better. So is it easier to take advantage of one mistake by a good pitcher, or is it easier to take advantage of mistakes by hitting three singles or a double and a single or whatever against pitchers that are typically good and trying to do those in a span of an inning? It's a lot harder to get multi-run innings, and it's a, it's just a matter of math. It's a matter of like what's easier to get one big hit or three medium to little hits. And that's kind of where the playoff math stands. So the point is, is Varland's got to clean up the home runs because they're going to be big swinging. And if they know that Varland is home run prone, you can guarantee that those guys are going to come up there swinging for the fences against Louis Varland. So he has to make that adjustment. But again, there's, there's enough time to at least figure some things out or theoretically work on some things, or even just anecdotally make it where this situation is the anecdote or the outlier or the not necessarily the justification. But based on what we've seen from Varland already this year, do gives up some homers. Um, and we'll talk again about how the Twins can manage bullpen and everything as they get ready towards the end of the season. But my last thing uh, in the Mets series is we wasted a Pablo masterclass. That's what I would be saying if I was uh, in the Twins dugout. Pablo Lopez had possibly the best start of his career and not, you know, 
maybe not, maybe not even the best start of the season because Pablo Lopez, of course, had the complete game shutout. Uh, I believe it was against the Royals in early July. Well, yesterday, or excuse me, Sunday, uh, Pablo Lopez through eight shutout innings had a career high 14 strikeouts against the New York Mets. And how many runs did the twins score? Zero. And then Griffin Jacks came in. And again, Griffin Jacks has been weird. I wouldn't say he's been bad, but he's gotten really unlucky and he has not done a good job of controlling his luck or necessarily handling the bad luck that comes his way. Like he gets dealt a bad hand a lot. He gets a lot of bloop singles and a lot of funky things that don't happen to most pitchers. He gets a seeing eye single all the time. You know, he just inherits some weird base runners, but at the same time, you know, you got to create your own luck in a sense of like, I get that things are going weird, but when you get to the postseason, you can't just say, well, you know, things have been going weird. So we got to see what happens. Maybe you do, but like, you know, I get that it's not all Griffin Jackson's fault, and I get that Griffin Jackson hasn't been a horrible pitcher, but at the same time, in the postseason, if you have a fluky base hit, can Griffin Jacks mentally rebound and get the rest of the inning taken care of, or at least get this next hitter in front of him taken care of? And I don't know, because things have kind of been spiraling out of control when he's come into the game. Now, he was in the uh, Air Force, he's in the military, and I'm not going to nece- I'm not going to question his mental toughness, and especially his physical toughness, uh, but at the same time, you got to have a little bit of that mental toughness in that situation and get through it. I'm not saying he's got a lack of it. I'm saying that that's what's been the case. Like he's got to, he's got to find a way to work through it in those situations. Uh, but the twins lose that game to nothing wasted a Pablo masterclass, which again, gets me to my point. Pablo Lopez is an ace and should start game one of a playoff series. Pablo Lopez has been everything the twins have wanted out of the Luis Arise trade and more. I understand Luis Arise, and this isn't the first time I'm saying it on this podcast, so I'm going to be brief, but Luis Arise is a very good baseball player. I wish he was still in the Minnesota Twins. He is likely going to win a batting title this year. He won the batting title the year before. The Luis Arise trade is fine. It's fine. I liked Arise. I loved him. I love the energy. I love the diversity he brought to the Twins lineup and being a singles hitter. I don't necessarily like a lineup full of singles hitters, but having one or two spursed out to kind of diversify the lineup a little bit. So knowing not everybody's power hitting and home run hitting and swinging for the fences. I don't mind that, but here's the thing. Uh, it's twofold. One, the Twins needed high, not just starting pitching, but high end starting pitching. The Twins not only brought in Pablo Lopez, who is an above average pitcher, for the Marlins. They took Pablo Lopez, they added the sweeper, they took down the changeup usage a little bit, and they worked with him throughout the offseason. And Pablo Lopez is now under contract through an extension through 2027. So he's going to be here for a while. He is at about what it would have costed to extend Jose Barrios. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, Pablo Lopez is better than Jose Barrios got a higher ceiling. He's produced more than Jose Barrios this year. And the twins have him at the about the same number that they have Jose Barrios do the Toronto Blue Jays for their extension. And the twins can get out from underneath theirs early if Pablo starts to regress at all. But either way, Pablo Lopez is better than what Jose Barrios, who was the twins uh, ace before that point. He's better than Jose Barrios. If you want to look at F war, which, you know, people are hot and cold on, he's been producing at or above the rate of, Luis Rice in terms of wins above replacement. I don't necessarily like to use that figure because pitchers and hitters and, and F war versus B war, you know, 
I think the golden rule, at least what I've heard, was always trust. And B war is baseball reference war, and F war is Fangraphs war. Fangraphs is a baseball data website, so is Baseball Reference. They use two different formulas to calculate wins above replacement, which is how many more wins this specific player gives you above a replacement level player. Anyway, that's a whole point to say that Pablo Lopez has been better than him in that category. Pablo Lopez. Uh, has over 200 strikeouts on the season uh, and is the last twin to do that since Jose Barrios in 2018. So the the guy has been pitching well, very, very well. Pablo Lopez, uh, if you look at his 14 strikeout game, is the most strikeouts that a twin has pitched in a game. Uh, it's like Johan Santana's like one, two, three, four, five. And, and uh, excuse me, um, Pablo Lopez is sixth. I think that's, that was uh, from Aaron Gleeman on Twitter, but um, like the dude's been pitching great. He's great. He's great. And I love Luis Arise, but Pablo Lopez is great. And we need to appreciate him. We need to be happy that Pablo Lopez is here. I wish Luis Arise was on the twins, but at the same time, it's okay. Because did you see there was a highlight of Luis Arise running through a double and he's limping on his way there. Now he's still playing and he's still gaming, which he did for the twins last year a lot too. But Luis Arise always breaks down in the second half of seasons. The batting average is dipped. Remember he was hitting 400 in June and it's dipped now is that his batting average has gone way down in the second half of the season as it did last year with the twins. This isn't a knock on Luis Arise or to say he's terrible because his season long stats are still good. It's to say that there were flaws in Luis Arise. He's limited defensively. He he has a tendency to break down as the seasons go on. And again, team, he doesn't walk a lot. He doesn't strike out. He doesn't strike out a lot. He doesn't walk a lot either because teams pound the strike zone on him because they know he's not going to hit a home run. So they're saying, fine, hit a ground ball. And, you know, I trust that I can get you to hit a ground ball towards my fielders versus getting a single. Um, the point is, is that what the Twins have lost in Luis Arise, they got a pitcher in Pablo Lopez, and what softened the blow of losing Arise is you had Edward Julian in the minors. Ed Julian is like, not Luis Arise 2.0, but as close as you're going to get to him, because Ed Julian is a good hitter. He's uh, not as pure of a hitter. He's not necessarily a high average hitter as Luis Arise is, but he's got a, just as good of an eye at the plate as Luis Arise. And, you know, right now, Ed Julian, he's been slumping a little bit. The critique on him is, Dude's being too passive. If you watch him at the plate, he's watching a lot of strikes. He's not necessarily being aggressive at the plate, which you, you know, he's a guy that walks a lot. So you say, oh, well, like he knows what a ball and strike is. He's, you know, he's got a good eye at the plate. He does. But at the same time, there's sometimes, and look, uh, if you're watching on the live stream on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, like I got a town ball hat on, I play a little bit of town ball. It's not like, I'm not great by any stretch, which is why I know that sometimes you go up to the plate against the pitcher and you're like, man, I'm going to take a lot of pitches and hope that I get walked. Like, that's the goal. And Julian's been slumping at the plate. He's been drawing a lot of walks, but it also means he's been a little passive at the plate. But at the same time, Julian has still got a good eye. Generally, he's been hitting over the course of the season. He's a rookie. He's going to go through his ups and downs. Julian is limited defensively like a rise is. Uh, he really can only play second and first base, and even second base can be a struggle uh, for him at times. But Man, the Pablo Lopez trade is fine. I'm not going to say it's a win for the Twins. I'm not going to say it's a win for them, like a, a fleece. Now, like when you trade in fantasy football with your buddies, there's always got to be like, a, oh, I fleeced this guy in a trade. I completely screwed him over. 
that's not necessarily what this is. That's not necessarily what most trades are. I know it's a lot more fun to look at trades like that. It's a lot more, uh, you know, fun for baseball as a whole to look at the Tyler Malley trade and go, oh, look what the Twins gave up. But that's not what most trades are. Most trades are you do get some value back and the other team gets value back. Look at the Kenta Maeda for Bruce Star Gratterall trade. The Dodgers got themselves a high leverage uh, relief arm who could throw gas and help them win the World Series in 2020. And the Twins got Kenta Maeda, who is a Cy Young candidate in 2020, who again missed, you know, who regressed in 2021, missed all of 2022, but has still been a valuable addition to the Twins team. Now, you know, who won or lost the trade, it doesn't matter. Trades aren't a zero-sum game. There is no winners and losers most of the time. There's beneficiaries. The Twins benefited and the Dodgers benefited in that trade. The Twins benefited in the Pablo Lopez trade. They got an ace. They got their number one pitcher, and he's locked up now for years to come. And the Marlins got a hitter who's helped out their lineup. It's fine. It's fine. The Pablo Lopez trade is fine. So I think we all need to collect it. And I think the Twins have, for the most part, I think because Arise has struggled and the Twins have won a little bit more. But I think we as a whole and a lot more people who are a little more casual, maybe, uh, I'm not necessarily saying to get over it. Like, you got to get over it and grow up. Like, a, you know, just we got to get over it a little bit and, and move on. Like, even the Tyler Malley trade or the uh, Jorge Lopez trade, which are both busts for the Twins, they stunk. And we do have to hold it against Falvey. But at the same time, like, are we going to sit here and whine and moan? about every single trade. Like, I don't know how beneficial that is in a sense. Like, I, I, I get it. Those trades do have value. The Twins could have used those prospects. I get all of that, even if they don't stay on the roster. Could have used them in trades, but you win some, you lose some, and you got to move on. So anyway, uh, Pablo doing great. Luisa Rice doing great. I'm happy for both of them. Can we just leave it at that? Uh, anyway, the Twins got owned by Tyler Glass now last night and those of you who are listening probably are listening as the twins are playing right now or as the they've already played on tuesday night but glass now own the twins not going to get into it too much he's a great pitcher tampa bay rays are a great team their main strength as a bullpen uh and really pitching overall is to take guys that nobody's ever heard of and look like accountants and make them throw mid to high 90s fastballs with nasty sliders. That's essentially what the Tampa Bay Rays are. It's why they've stayed relevant, even though they have the, one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. The Tampa Bay Rays are like the modern version of the Moneyball A's, except they do a much better. Uh, they do things much better. They run tighter ships in there, mainly because, well, I want to say their ownership is less volatile, but then I remember the Montreal uh, experiment that Tampa Bay wants to have. So uh, never mind. Uh, but the point is, is that the Tampa Bay Rays have figured out how to turn themselves into a pitching powerhouse, and it's helped them out. Remember Zach Littell? He was like a fringe Twins pitcher in like 2017, 2018, even parts of 2019 and 2020. He's gone. He's not with the Twins anymore, but he's with Tampa. He's going to start in the game against Joe Ryan, who again was in the Rays system. and once again. Twins, I don't necessarily, again, just talk about trade fleecing. The one fleece you can talk about is the Twins getting Joe Ryan for Nelson Cruz. Two months of a 40-year-old Nelson Cruz, the Twins got six years of Joe Ryan in his prime. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good trade-off in that sense. Uh, but even still, the Tampa Bay Rays had a surplus of pitching. So for them, it, it obviously hasn't mattered to them. That's my whole point uh, about trades. But uh, so that's what the Rays are. And again, Look at some of the things the Rays do and how the Rays play baseball and how the Rays approach scouting and developing and doing all that. 
That's what the Twins are. The Twins are a diet version of that. They are Tampa Bay light. I've been saying that for a while. It doesn't mean they follow every single ism that the Rays have or every single philosophy that Tampa Bay has. But if you look generally at what the Twins want to blueprint their organization and their structure, it's with Tampa. The Twins have tried to hire a lot of guys away from Tampa Bay in the scouting and analytics department to develop their analytics department. Rocco Baldelli, the Twins manager, was in the coaching staff of Tampa Bay and in the analytics department of Tampa Bay before coming over to the Twins. So a lot of what Tampa Bay likes to do, the Twins are trying to emulate and Falvey and Levine have been trying to emulate since taking over the Twins. So that's always a fun thing to keep in mind when they play the Rays. You don't necessarily notice it when you're watching the games all the time, but when you read articles about the Rays and you hear things about Tampa and how they do things, how they do things, not... Again, it's not an apples to apples comparison of how the twins like to do things, but it's pretty close on how the twins generally like to run their organization. Okay, so a couple injury news and notes to go over. Uh, according to, and the twins must have did some kind of presser today. So multiple ten, twins reporters, including Dan Hayes and Doe Hyung Park uh, of uh the of the athletic and mlb.com respectively have noted brock stewart remember him he was a big setup guy for the twins in their bullpen really big offseason addition for them that was one knock is that and why he signed such a cheap deal with the twins got hurt a lot well he sat out in mid to late june as a precautionary measure got really hurt and it uh, turns out he's a lot more hurt than he was letting on i guess the best way to phrase it and he's not uh, hasn't pitched with the Twins since. He's slowly been working his way back. He had a setback a few weeks ago and now is coming back again. He's going to be doing, uh, he did some stuff in St. Paul or in, uh, excuse me, Wichita, I believe. And now he's going to be making some rehab stints in St. Paul, which, and he's still, I can't remember if it was him or Chris Paddock, who we'll get to in a second. They have that late September, like September 20th, September 22nd range of when they want to try and, uh, when they want to try and get some, uh, get, uh, sorry, I got my phone buzzing, uh, fantasy football group chat. You gotta love them. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, lost my train of thought, there. but again, that late September, uh, craze is when they want necessarily Chris Paddock to come back and again, do the Louis Varlin route of your starter. But for this point in the season, we want you to pitch out of the bullpen and you can pitch a couple innings in a playoff game, or we could use you as like a one inning flamethrower, Chris Paddock, uh, is and Jorge Alcala, by the way, who was a Twins reliever early in the season. He struggled. He was hurt. He hasn't uh, down in St. Paul. He hasn't been able to do much because again, when he was with the Twins early in the season, he didn't pitch very well. Then they sent him down to AAA. Didn't pitch well in AAA, and then he was hurt. Uh, so now the Twins could say, "Hey, he didn't pitch well because he was battling through some stuff." The Twins like the stuff of Jorge Alcala. They like his makeup. Uh, I, I want to be a Jorge Alcala defender. I really do. It's just really hard for me to get around with the idea that this guy can help the Twins in high leverage situations, especially in postseason baseball. Jorge Alcala just has not shown he's been able to do that, whether it's been a lack of command in the strike zone, whether it's been giving up home runs, two of which are like cardinal sins for relievers. I I want to trust Jorge Alcala and over the course of a regular season, I could maybe get around to trusting Jorge Alcala. But at this point in the 2023 season, uh, I don't, I don't trust Jorge Alcala and I don't trust him in the playoffs and I don't trust that. And I don't think that Jorge Alcala can get back and pitch in enough big league games throughout the season. The rest of this year, there's 19, 18 games left where really I could trust him to come back and he's still in double a 
which means he's got to clear that hurdle and get to AAA. So it kind of gets to the point of there's Paddock, there is Stewart, there's Alcala. Which ones do the Twins want back? Ideally, the Twins, it seems like they want all three of them back, the way they're hyping up Jorge Alcala with the other two. Uh, Chris Paddock, they want back. But again, he's coming off Tommy John surgery. He missed most of last season, and he missed so far all of this season recovering from Tommy John. So, you know, again, like Kenta Maeda, it took Maeda a while. Now, maybe starter versus reliever, things are different. Kenta's much older than Chris Paddock is. Chris Paddock's like 28, 29. Kenta's in his mid-30s. But still, do you trust Chris Paddock coming off of Tommy John surgery to come in and be a key part of the Twins' bullpen and take on like the same thing as the Louis Varland role of, you know, can you pitch one to two innings, maybe three, in a postseason game? I don't know if I trust Chris Paddock. I trust Brock Stewart out of all three of them, because I've seen Brock Stewart pitch this season and I've seen him pitch well. The injury thing is what concerns me, but in a small sample size, we don't really got to worry about injury. In a a three-week stretch of what is basically Major League Baseball playoffs, it doesn't really matter. Um, Now, I obviously want the guy to be healthy, but like, you you know, out of those three guys I trust to come in and pitch, every one of them's got their question marks. They do. But in a pecking order, I would do Stewart, Paddock, Alcala in terms of guys. If I had to choose between those three guys to come in any playoff situation, I would choose Stewart, Paddock, and Alcala in that order. Uh, I guess maybe the only situation would be finding multiple innings. Then maybe I would go Paddock over Stewart. But even then, do we know Paddock can pitch multiple innings effectively because he's coming off Tommy John surgery? Now, he had his rehab in uh, Fort Myers. He moved up from Fort Myers. He completely skipped Cedar Rapids and went right up to double A. And I think it's because Cedar Rapids is in their playoffs right now. Uh, either way, or at least very close to them. But that's uh, that's where they stand. Brock Stewart is the closest to returning. Chris Paddock's closer to returning to Jorge Alcala. Again, the jury's still out on him. And again, this gets into the larger discussion of how should the Twins approach using their relievers in the postseason. And we'll get to that when that gets a little bit closer, but let's get to maybe how they should go about their bullpen through the rest of the season. Because you've seen Yohan Duran, he was a little shaky for a while, and it was mainly because he was getting overused. There was a stretch in late July and early August where Duran was really getting taxed. He was just being used, it felt like, every other day because the Twins, again, the offense wasn't quite quite clicking yet. They were playing in a lot of close ball games, a lot of 3-2, to two, a lot of 7-6, a lot of whatever. Uh, and Duran just had to pitch a lot. I'm a guy who throws really hard as to pitch a lot. It's just less effective because he's sore. He's not quite throwing his hard. He's not quite in command because he's just a little worn down and giving Duran time, which the twins have been deliberately doing. I mean, yesterday the twins were losing three to one or four to one or whatever it was. And they decided to basically wave the white flag by pitching Hedrick and pitching winder and I believe there were, Dylan Floro was in that game. So like the twins were waving the white flag in that situation and that's okay. That's fine. Because as we've talked about, the twins basically have the central locked up. They have an uh, 11 game magic number. And again, that magic number is a combination of twins wins or Cleveland losses with 18 to go. The central's cl- basically clinched. It's not mathematically clinched, but it's basically clinched. And they don't necessarily need to try and scratch claw win every game because it doesn't, I get that, you know, the, the talking point will be in the playoffs is that, oh my gosh, look at the Toronto Blue Jays. If they miss the playoffs, they won more games than the Twins, and yet the Twins get to host a home playoff series. That's the that's the rules of the road right now. I don't care. 
I do the fact that the Twins uh, are going to win uh, a division with the least amount of wins of any playoff team does not bother me because it impacts my it it uh, favorable it impacts favorably to my team. So therefore, I don't care about it. Now, if it were the other way around, I'm sure I'd be upset about it. But uh, for this season, it doesn't matter. Uh, the Twins just need to get into the postseason as the AL Central champions, and it looks like they're going to do that. So who cares? Why should the Twins try and work really hard to win 88 games so that way they can be better than uh, Toronto or Seattle at the end of the season to justify it to everyone? They're already in the playoffs. It does not matter. And again, we've seen a case of the 1987 Twins who came in not winning a lot of baseball games in the regular season, and they won the World Series. We've seen in 2006, the St. Louis Cardinals won, I think, like 84 games, and they won the World Series. It's like the worst amount of wins ever for a World Series champion. And even a couple of years ago, it was like 86 wins, 85 wins for the 2021 Atlanta Braves. They didn't have a Cunha, and they still won the World Series. Like, uh, it they are able, or it was either Albies. It was one of the, I think it was one of the two, uh, Cooney or Albies. But the point is, is that sometimes it doesn't matter. You just need to get in and get hot. And what's more important for the twins, getting to some, arb- your regular season wins don't matter once you get into the playoffs. And the twins are locked into that three seed. So who cares how many wins they get overall? I'd much rather have that bullpen be rested up. I'd much rather have Duran be rested and Pagan be rested and figure out what I have in Hedrick and, what I what I have in Winder and what I have in Dylan Floro and what I have in Cody Funderburk and what I have in uh, uh, Louis Varland and once these guys eventually get in Stewart and Paddock and even potentially Alcala like I'd much rather use the rest of the season for the bullpen to figure out where my other guys are in the hierarchy getting into the postseason and even then. I mean, you've seen it with the Twins, which why they brought in Cody Funderburk in some very high leverage situations, even though he's made five career appearances. They want to know right away, can this guy pitch or not? Because we don't have time to warm him up. Can like we don't have time to warm him up in low leverage situations and then in a month get him higher leverage situations. We want to know right away because we might need him in the postseason. And it's the same thing with some of these other guys. Put him to the test, see if you can use him. But at the same time, they can't overly tax each other. And you're gonna see games where it feels like the twins can win, yet they're not using their best guys because they don't need to win, they don't need to scratch and claw for every single win. So use this time to see what you have in other guys while resting everybody else. Think of it in a way as like, remember what the twins did last year with Buxton and Correa? There was a lot of like rotating of like, today's their scheduled off day. Today's their scheduled DH day. There just needs to be some scheduled off days in there for the twins relievers where they're absolutely shut down. And normally in the regular season, you can't do that because what if we need to run in this situation? Yeah, he hasn't, he pitched yesterday, but we need him to pitch in this game. It might be if Duran pitches today, he's automatically got the next three days off. And you can always ramp up in that final week of the season to get everybody back in that sense. But you got to keep your bullpen guys rested because those starting pitchers are fine. They're going to pitch less innings in the postseason. It's your bullpen that is going to need to be on point if you want to try and make a deep run. So make sure that those guys are at the top of their game. Make sure they get well rested. Make sure that they are ready to go. All right. Well, uh, I think this is getting towards the end of Bombs Away. I do want to finish. I'm going to tease an article that I have coming up, and it is about September Carlos Correa and the legend of that. Uh, You're going to like the comparison I have towards him, at least uh, uh, if everything turns out uh, in the article the way that uh, I think will end up. 
the numbers are talking about Carlos Correa in September. And it got me thinking about September Carlos Correa. And we've mentioned him on the broadcast uh, on the uh, show before. Uh, remember, Carlos Correa last year went off in September, had this great month of September, basically salvaged a season that did not look well coming into September. And it basically kept this status as a top tier shortstop that should have been gotten paid, would have gotten paid. What was it like $300 million for $350 million over 13 years? Like whatever the number was from the giants, Carlos Correa finished that. And a lot of people, you know, was it stat padding? Is it whatever? Is it whatever? doesn't matter. Carlos Correa is having a worse year this year than he did last year, like by every objectable measure, almost everyone. And he's still having a better month of September now than he was uh, compared to the rest of the season, which goes to the point of September, Carlos Correa just kind of knows how to show up. Because again, Carlos Correa, in terms of his playoff accolades, is seventh all time in playoff home runs and sixth all time in playoff RBIs. This guy knows how to hit in the postseason, knows how to produce in the postseason. Doesn't necessarily mean that correlates this year, but what it means is I he's got the benefit of the doubt for me. He's a pro. He's played a lot of baseball games. He's played a lot of important baseball games, and I trust that he'll come through in some big moments. Maybe not every big moment, but most of them. So anyway, I go full in-depth detail talking about some numbers uh, from September Carlos Correa and why it's important and can that carry over into the postseason. Uh, I go a little bit more in-depth than that. That article should be coming out in the next day or two on zone coverage, so be sure to check that out. I'll also post it on the Bombs Away and my own personal Twitter page. But holy cow, this podcast has been about 50 minutes long. Did not think it was going to be that long and I was going to ramble, but uh, had some stuff to say. So... There you go. Follow Bombs Away, a Minnesota Twins podcast hosted by me, CJ Baumgartner. Follow it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to the podcast on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. You can listen to it there as well. And, you know, give us a like, give us a follow on all those pages. Give us a five-star review on the podcast platforms. We really do appreciate it. Postseason is coming. I got some stuff planned for the postseason. We got some mailbags uh, planned coming up. So be sure to tune in and listen for the call to mailbag uh, from the Bombs Away Twitter account and more. So again, be sure to check all of those out when they come. All right, uh, catch you guys later. I'm going to go watch uh, the Twins game that's uh, upcoming, and we'll see how they do over the next two games against Tampa Bay. Again, take one of those. Let's try and split those two. But again, it doesn't matter. Twins have the division locked up, and they're basically playing to try and get everybody rested and ready to go for the rest of the regular season and into the postseason. All right, cool. Catch you guys next time.